The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Cork's 96FM. Thursday morning, the 21st of January. Good morning, 1850-715-996. The number, the text to WhatsApp is 083-396-9696. And the email is opinion at 96fm.ie. Don't you just love Adam King? Don't you just love that little kid? Uh, star of the toy show. He was uh, brilliant with us on our Christmas show on the opinion line on Christmas Eve. And now that little virtual hug of his. Like, what? Uh, it's a brand that that young lad at, at just what is he six going on seven it's a brand that he's got now uh, for himself and, and such a lovely little kid and that will be projected onto all sorts of buildings and monuments and stuff uh, to um, to mark National Hug Day because we can't we can't hug each other so we might as well use his virtual hug so it's, it's brilliant it's great delighted to see to see him back in the in the news again. It apparently will be going on to City Hall, County Hall, and they're saying that the Shaky Bridge, Daly's Bridge, the Shaky Bridge, will be lit up. It'll go on to the fountain on the Grand Parade is another place that Adam's virtual hug will be projected for, for National Hug Day. That That's lovely to see. And at the same time, uh, Neffet, whether you want to hug them or hit them, they're, they're meeting today. Um, and after that, the usual letter to government will issue with recommendations as to where we go from here and we'll wait for that. But what we do know at this stage is that both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael parliamentary parties were told yesterday uh, you can forget about getting out of this level five racket lads for a while anyway. Middle of February is what they're telling us now. With this being the 21st of January, I think we can nearly assume it'll be at minimum Valentine's Day and then of course they won't release much around then because there'll be a midterm break coming up so the schools will be off anyway until then so I think lads and I'm going to make a call on it here and if I'm wrong I'm wrong they'll be the first one to admit it I don't think we'll get any kind of release of worth talking about at all until after Paddy's Day I, I honestly don't think so um, if, if you think I'm wrong, grand, and, and if I'm wrong, I will, I will admit it. But I don't think we will. And to be quite honest, given the rate of case numbers and given the astonishing rate of death, we had 61 more poor, misfortunate families last night uh, mourning, or mourning the, the, the loss of a, of a loved one. And we had 93 the other day. Like At that rate of mortality and at that rate of new cases, still... 2,400 again yesterday. We can't, we just can't afford to come out of this thing uh, for for the foreseeable future. But look, if you have any thoughts on it, we'd welcome welcome them. 1850-715-996, the number, and the text to WhatsApp, 083-396-9696. A bit later on this morning, we will hear from Councillor Fiona Ryan. Now, we regularly heard from Fiona on the show. She's a solid and strong contributor to our show and indeed to uh, 96FM News and you might have been wondering where she's been for the last few months. She's actually been having major surgery. Roll that clip there, Wayne. For me, um, I was very sure that I knew what I wanted to do. I didn't want to have to manage the worry of breast cancer for the rest of my life. I, I wanted to eliminate that risk as much as possible so I decided to go with the preventative uh, bilateral mastectomy. That's where she's been. You can hear that full interview after 10 o'clock. She has 
the BRCA gene, the Angelina Jolie gene, as it became known uh, in the last few years. And you'll hear that full interview after 10 o'clock this morning. 1850-715-996. We have been listening all week to the stories about teachers and the stories about special needs assistance. And we know now where that one is going. The unions are going to talk again with the minister and with the government. Um, and hopefully something will happen in the next week or so about special needs education. They'll come to some agreement that that people can can live with. And yesterday there was a division. There was really a division uh, in the comments on all the platforms between how people felt. And we had teachers ringing us and we had SNAs ringing us and, and saying, look, you know, we're, we're just not being awkward here. We're, we're genuinely afraid. And on the other hand, with people ringing up with the usual little nonsense about, I'll put them all on the COVID, that'll get them back to work. So it goes to both sides. And But one group we haven't heard about at all is childcare providers. And the Federation of Early Childcare Providers have spoken to them many times on the opinion line. They contest very strongly with validity that they are also part of the education system. But at the moment, they're the only part of the education system that is still open. They're open for essential workers and the children of essential workers. We went over that list a couple of weeks ago. It's a very long list. Elaine Dunn is the chair of the Federation of Early Childhood Providers. Elaine, you guys issued a press release in the last couple of days saying every day is a new battle which has not helped by negative media coverage. What did you mean? Good morning. Okay, so um, what is going on at the moment? So we're, we're looking at the teachers and the, um, the way they have been treated and they've been treated with respect and the schools did not open. So then you read in the newspapers the SMAs and the teachers of the special schools are not going back in because there's no childcare. There is absolutely childcare. We are all open, and 70% of the sector that is open is running at very, very low occupancy. So we have plenty of space for anybody that needs us there. We are 100% here. We are here and we're looking after families as we speak. We are on the line. We are the frontline workers. We are here. We open our doors every day. We have minimum PPE. You can wear a mask if you want. So every time we looked at the newspaper over the last 10 days, it was always about, oh, but there's no childcare. There is absolutely plenty of childcare within the sector. There's no I, I doubt about that. that was just one of the concerns, Elaine, to yeah. be fair. There were other concerns, you know. No, absolutely. But it was just for us, it was very disheartening because we are open and our doors are open and we are welcoming anybody that wants our service and needs our service. The door is open. And, and I must add that our doors are open, but there is anxiety among our own sector. You know, we have our doors open. We have no specific guidelines. They have not changed from the 29th of June to now. So we have our doors open. It's not mandatory that we wear a mask. So mm. there are services now. And if you look at our survey, so 14% of the people on the service, so 99 services at the time when we did it last weekend, out of 700 had COVID in them since the 4th of January. Now that mm. number has gone up quite a bit since then. Now we've come to another issue where when you ring the HSC helpline and you say a parent has now contacted COVID, who is a frontline worker in a hospital, and the two children have been in your service, they are now not classed as close contact and they have been in your service for the last two and a half weeks. And we are not now getting those children tested or anybody in our services. 
which is absolutely disgraceful. Mm. So I think what, they've said what, they're going to go back to close contact uh, testing in the next week or so because the numbers are starting to come down. That would be helpful. That would be very helpful for us, 100%. But as we speak at the moment, that's not happening. So services are now left in limbo across the country, knowing that a parent and children may be at home with COVID who have been in your service, and yet you now have to continue on in your daily routine, keep going and do the service and do everything that you possibly can to keep everybody safe. But you are in the unknown land because you don't know whether anybody else is going to get the COVID. And as we all know, this new variant is spreading very, very fast. And that is a huge concern for us. Yeah. You, you outlined a number of problems in the press release. And one of them was, and it, it read to me like, like an accusation <laughs> against the Taoiseach of, of bullying tactics to force you to stay open. Okay, so what, what is going on? So we were told that if we didn't open our doors on the 4th of January, and we were the full daycare services or part-time services, that our funding will be taken back, which leaves us with no sustainability whatsoever because you won't have parents' fees and you won't have anything. And if you can't open your doors because your staff can't come into work because they don't have childcare or they may have COVID within their family, close network, so they cannot come in for those 14 days. And you have staff now that are also going out who have caught um, COVID within the services as well. So how can they tell us they're going to recoup funding and leave us with nothing? So we have to open our doors or, or get nothing. That's basically it. So I don't know what you would call that, but I would call that bullying. It certainly reads that way. I'll put it that way to you. And I think a lot of people would see it that way, that you either open up and you, you do what you do, and you do it, you know, you as best you can, or there's no money. Yeah, absolutely. And now you have services. Now, now I suppose people would argue, Elaine, that if you don't open the door, you're not earning the money. Well, you're very underfunded anyway. We are very underfunded. And we've been fighting this for how many years now that we are so underfunded as a sector. So the little bit of financial help that you do get is all you have to keep your operational costs going. So if your doors are closed down to something, to lack of anything you can do about it and your funding is pulled, you cannot pay your, your rents or your rates, your any other bills that come in, your electricity, anything else. And even for us, the ones that are open, we're not even covering our operational costs at the moment because they're very, very low occupancy. Mm. So we're, no. like, we have our doors open. We are doing everything we possibly can. And yet, we are getting no extra help with the operational cost because of low occupancy in the sector at this time. Something else that you also raise, and I spoke to the teachers' unions, their various leaders about this on the opinion line over the last number of weeks, is the, the, the relatively low priority on the vaccine list for teachers. Now, you guys are in the same category, if I'm reading the categories correctly, category yeah. 11. That's right, yeah, we're still in category 11, and we have been fighting this now since we reopened on the 4th of January to be moved up on the list. We should be prioritised, but there's no doubt about it. Like At this time, like it's disgraceful that we are open, we are putting our lives on the line, and we are getting nothing. We have no respect for our sector whatsoever at this time. We really haven't, and we have to insist at this time that all of our staff and the providers are given the option to take the vaccine now. What about the question, though, Elaine, that... And it arose at the time with regard to the teachers. Like if, if you guys are moved up the priority list, who gets kicked down it? I have no idea, but I just know we are the ones that are open. 
We are the ones that are frontlining. We are the ones that are keeping the economy going. And yes, we are the hidden sector. Nobody hears our voice. We do everything. You know, all these different uh, groups that we have out there working on behalf of the childcare sector. And we're all out there asking for the vaccine. Everybody's asking for it. And it has been totally ignored. Nobody has answered any of our questions regarding can we be prioritised at this time. All right. Elaine, I'll leave it there. Those are very clear issues that you raised. Thank you very much, Elaine Dunn, Chair of the Federation of Early Childhood Providers. Uh, I think that thing about if you you don't open, lads, and take in healthcare or other frontline workers, children, then your funding stops. We've got the list in front of us again. I will read it at some stage. It's a very, very long list, I can tell you. There's a lot of people classed as essential and therefore classed as being able to access the, the child care providers. But then some of the child care providers are saying, hang on a second, what about us for PPE? What about us for a vaccine? And then if they close the doors because they're afraid, well, the money stops and they're 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 kicking up, I think, after all of the attention paid to teachers and special needs assistance in the last few days. I'll talk to a provider in Douglas next. 1850-715-996. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Lehan Motors, leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See lehanmotors.ie. Cork loves the arts. We do too. That's why we bring you the Arts House. Every Sunday on Cork's 96FM. Hi, it's Elmerie. Each week we bring you the latest news from our vibrant and creative communities all around Cork. Whether it's tips for the best live gigs online, new initiatives from Cork's writers and musicians, join Elmerie Mall and Connor Tallon as we work to support and keep the arts alive in Cork. The Arts House. Sunday mornings 8 to 10. With Griffin's Potatoes Cork. Fresh flowery and full of taste. It's at the root of what we do. On Quartz 96 FM. This is Quartz Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Quartz 96 FM. Now after the teachers and SNAs and special needs providers in education dominated the show for the last few days and rightly so it's a massive story a huge story the press release that came out yesterday from the federation of early child care providers raised a whole other set of issues and i was just talking there as you'll have heard to elaine the kind of things they're dealing with they feel they're being pushed into opening their service they use the word themselves bullied by the Taoiseach and the government into opening their service because they're saying, unless you open your doors, well, the money stops. And they get little enough money as it is. So, effectively, that kind of money is what keeps the lights on, what keeps the rads on. That money will be taken away if they don't open their doors. And and they see that as a form of bullying. But there are other problems in trying to run a childcare centre in the midst of a level five lockdown in the middle of a pandemic. John Bowman uh, is uh, has Bell Childcare in Douglas. John, good morning. Good morning, PJ. Go through the, the daily issues that you have to face as you keep a service going for essential workers. Well, I suppose it, it starts with staffing. It, it starts with uh, opening your door, our doors at 7.30 in the morning and hoping all our staff are present. Um, once that's the case, once we have a full company, company of people in, then it's the, making sure that the environment is kept safe, 
children are washing their hands as they come in, parents are dropping at a safe distance, and then inside that we're following all our hygiene practices. Early years education is very well set up to deal with infection control. It's something that we've we've been dealing with always in our services. But the heightened, I suppose, sense of, of caution around COVID is something new for us. But it's, it's something that most of us are able to deal with, but we're able to deal with it by keeping our numbers at a manageable level. And that's a challenge at the moment because while we, there's a certain number that are needed to be viable, PJ, because I mean, we, we're a business who relies heavily on parental fees. And while the government do support us with, with, with their schemes, that, that money is not our sole, our sole income. And at the moment, because of the mixed messaging that's gone out of government, our occupancy is very, very low. So we're now reaching sustainability and viability challenges on top of the challenges faced with keeping the place COVID-free. Yeah, like the money that does come in from the government, I, I was saying there, that just about keeps the lights on, just about keeps the reds on. Yeah, it, it, it does. Well, it depends on, on, the, on the, the style of service. We're all, we're all slightly different. But yes, the, the funding that comes in, look, nobody's getting rich out of childcare. I mean, childcare is a very costly service to provide. We're essentially running schools on behalf of the government with very, with very low ratios. I mean, we have, um, you know, our baby rooms are three to one and then five to one. So it's a very costly service to run. Um, and without parental fees coming in and without the continuation of the state subsidies, we're, we're, we're in trouble as a sector and we're, we're not going to be able to provide that service to those who need it. Yeah. So what, what, like, you also see yourselves, rightly so, as part of the education sector. The schools are closed. We've had the whole debacle with trying to reopen uh, special needs education when the, the unions just said, look, no, sorry, we're, we're not happy under the present circumstances. I think you feel you're being uh, treated unfairly, John. There's an element of that, PJ, but equally, I mean, from the providers, I know many of us are delighted to be open and providing that service yeah. for, for frontline staff. I mean, the challenge is, I mean, where I feel the disconnect is that the Department of Education hasn't put in a, a plan to provide some sort of skeleton service. I mean, myself and my wife, we have two school-aged children who are home with us at the moment, and we're trying to juggle keeping two childcare services open while having our children at home. You know, it, it, the disconnect is the fact that I mean, we are, as Elaine said, we're, we're forced to be open, um, which we don't have a problem with because we want to provide the service on one level. But then, as I said, there's no sign of the Department of Education stepping up and putting something in place for frontline and essential workers, or as we've seen, uh, children with, with additional needs. You know, that's where the disconnect is, and that, that's where I suppose the, the feeling of anger is coming from. It's not aimed at the teachers themselves. I mean, the teachers themselves are trying to do a very difficult job. A lot of them are working online at the moment with their own children at home. So it, this isn't about pitting childcare workers against teachers. This really is looking at our various departments and their lack of connection with what's going on on the ground. I mean, we've had, what, nine months, nearly 10 months now since this thing raised its head Mm. in March, and there's no semblance of a solid plan coming out out of the department. Do do, do you ever feel, John, and and, and not just you now, but others in your sector and in other sectors, do you ever feel like banging your head off the wall of the classroom in frustration because of the things you've been trying to get sorted since March, April. Like, nine, ten months you've been asking this question, asking that question, looking for this provision, trying to find out what the exact protocol is with regard to that. And you're standing there going, we've nothing to go on, lads. Oh, PJ, it is soul-destroying. I mean, I'll give you the very practicals of it, right? I mean, I am due to be open on 1st of February. 
the government have no, have since for first. Fourth of January closed and cut off, a cut, and, and have said that the, the services aren't. Sorry, excuse me. That um, they they've, they've encouraged parents to stay at home, so many services are operating on viably at the moment. They've had the entire month of January to put something in place for first of February. We have been banging and shouting and roaring to be made part of that plan. Nobody has come forward to us. I mean, there's supposed to be a meeting on on the 25th of January to discuss plans for first of February. I. Mean, I that if, if there's only a meeting on the on the Monday and then we get information probably on the Thursday or Friday and we're supposed to be open on, on, on the 1st of February, it just doesn't stack up, PJ. And, and all we're asking really is to be given the time to plan so that we can inform our staff and in, inform our parents and make the necessary precautions. But we're not being afforded that time. You know, and mm. it, 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 it's not as if the government don't know what's going on. So I, I just don't do. understand. Yeah, exactly. So I don't understand their unwillingness to actually communicate with us. I mean, we're the ones supposedly charged with providing the service. I mean, and I'm the one who has to try and keep COVID out of my service. So I mean, I need to know what my occupancy will be. I need to know what staff I'm going to need. I need to know how I'm going to pay them. I need to know how I'm going to keep the lights on. Because I mean, last year, most people were very understanding. Suppliers were understanding. I got, I got waivers on rent until this year. But January 1st this year, that missing quarter from 2020 kicks in. So my rent has gone up by, 20%, by 25% this year. And that's just the reality of it because I'm dealing with the fallout of last year's COVID. You know? So these are, the, these are the commercial realities. So I mean, there's a commercial reality. There's, there's a health and safety reality. And then there's a provision of, of childcare reality. So there's, a, there's an awful lot of moving pieces. We're well able to do it, but we just want to be afforded the, the time and the information to do it properly. Because as Elaine was saying, there is an absolute lack of respect for the sector. There's a lack of respect for the people who, who provide it at the chalk face, the, the, the teachers and educators who go in and work with the children. But there's also a lack of respect from the providers, the people who, who we're, like we're a private industry. I mean, we, we have funded... We have gone on board. When the state wants capacity in childcare, they look to the private sector. We go into commercial banks, we borrow, we provide that capacity. And, but we are all personally on the hook for those loans. And all we are being asked is to be given the information or to work collaboratively with the department. You know, we, we're, yeah. this isn't rocket science, PJ. It is literally. Like, like, I think we all know at this stage, John, we're waiting for it to be put in writing, as it were. But we all know, for example, that the schools are not going back on the 1st of February. We know they're not. It's Are highly P- unlikely. P- but P- you P- can't work off we might you can't work off that until you get it confirmed. No, we can't. And I mean I have to say, listening to you uh, earlier when you were saying St Patrick's Day as a target, I would tend to agree with you without being any way alarmist for the schools to go back. So make a plan now. Instead of this week to lunging week to week precariously, sit down and make a plan and talk to childcare providers and go, guys, this is the contingency to get us until March 17th. You know, we hope we can resume normal service beforehand, but if we can't, here's the contingency. Work with Isn't that. that the key? Isn't that the key, John? And just to finish up, contingency is everything. You make a plan now, you decide, okay, there's a very strong possibility a very strong possibility that you won't be back to normal until after Paddy's Day. If that changes, it changes. But in the meantime, here's how we work with that. Simple as, PJ. You hit the nail on the head. That is it. And if necessary, kick that contingency out until the 1st of June. You know, we don't have to go that far, but at least give people the peace of mind to know that there is a plan there to get us to that point. I mean, and in the meantime, I would echo what Elaine was saying. Prioritise us for the vaccines. I mean, child, child care, 
teachers and educators are in there literally cheek by jowl with the children and that's what we want to do that's what we've signed up to do and that's the nature of the job but you've got to realize you I mean we have to reprioritize and when you were saying earlier who should come down the list I mean, it's not my, my place to decide, but when you hear and see in the newspapers that admin, backroom staff are getting prioritised for vaccines ahead of frontline staff, you've got to wonder what's going on. And this is, I suppose, again, the disconnect, and this is why maybe the government are beginning to lose the people a little bit. But, I mean, from my perspective, Bell Childcare is open in Douglas. We are there to provide for vulnerable children and essential workers' children. Mm. We're happy to do it. We just want to be allowed to do it safely, and we want to have a contingency in place that allows us to focus on the provision of childcare. Because this lunging week to week is very unfair on the families involved and on the providers and on the staff. But it's, it's really, really unfair on the families because, I mean, as as it, as it stands right now, PJ. I can't guarantee hand on heart that I'm going to be open on the 1st of February because I don't know how I'm going to do it. And we've been trying to engage with the government to get that information and it's not forthcoming. And as far as I'm concerned, going into next week, the 24th of January, and leaving us one week out from opening is, is scandalous. And it, it really shows what they think of the sector and the respect they have for the parents who rely on us. I mean, this is about more than just the, the providers and staff. This is about the, the families out there who need us, the frontline workers and the essential and the vulnerable, you know, and the, the lack of respect being shown to them so that nobody in the sector can definitively say what's going to be happening on the 1st of February. You know, I mean, that, John, that's shocking. I'll leave it there for now. You, you, you make your points very strongly. Thank you very much. John Bowman, who's the child care provider with Bell Child Care. In Douglas, 1850-715-996. Here's the list again of who's considered uh, the children of essential workers. So all of these people, their children are entitled to childcare from people like John. It's, it's, it's a long list. People working in anything to do with farming, manufacturing, supply, repair, installation of machinery. So literally anybody fixing a washing machine, their children are entitled to childcare, anybody working in the electricity, the gas, water, sewage, waste management sectors, construction workers, retail, transport, communications, accommodation and food services, even though the accommodation and food services are all closed at the moment, their children are still entitled to childcare, information communications people, financial and legal, like solicitors and bankers, uh, professional, scientific, technical activities, lab workers, well, fair enough, the lab workers are really busy at the moment, rental and leasing, so housing, uh, administrative and support, public administration, emergency services, defence, they're so far down the list, human health and social work activities, education and community involved. It's a big, big, long list of people whose children are entitled to childcare uh, during level five. But as John said, where's the plan for getting out of it? And where's the date? And where's the knowledge? And we're so far down the priority list, we don't know what we're doing from day to day. Is that really fair to be treating such an important sector like that, just in relation to to children and lockdown and Neffet and when restrictions might or might not end and and all of that. A few comments coming in after I was saying at the top of the program. Look, Neffet meeting today. They will issue like they always do a letter to the government, and that letter will have recommendations in it. And then last night, the various parliamentary parties were being told, look, prepare for an extension of all these, in the papers again this morning, prepare for an extension of all of these restrictions beyond 31st of January, probably into late February. 
and I'm saying to myself this morning, look, I think lads will be going beyond that into Patrick's day. Some people are saying we might even go beyond that into Easter time just to make sure that we can drive down all of this transmission, all of this community transmission and drive it down to the situation which we found ourselves last June, July, August, where we almost had it licked. And there seems to be a lot of support out there. I think there is anyway for, you know, just lock down, lock down hard and stay locked down until we have it fully under control. And then when we decide to come out of it again, to be a hell of a lot more careful than we were the last time. There's a, there's a bit of a bit of support for that. Trish and Tracy both say they think it'll be after Easter. Um, and and look, Easter is early this year. I think it'll be after Easter, says Tracy, before they open things up. And I hope that is so that this might be the last lockdown. Uh, as regards why we locked down and why we opened up before Christmas, PJ, if the government were going to be damned if they opened and damned if they didn't, I understand why they did it to give some sense of normality to Christmas given the tough year we'd had but we're all adults and we should be responsible for our actions we knew how to act cautiously and reduce our contacts some did others did not people's own actions seem to speak volumes I suppose though the thing about that is if we were given the opportunity to do it I went out myself I said that I went out myself the first weekend um, and I looking back on it now would I have gone out? I only went to the pub and had a, a bite to eat with a friend and a pint or two. That's all we did. W- would I have done it now? Would I do it again now? No, I don't think I would. I don't think I'd be happy myself to stay locked down until Paddy's Day or Easter if I thought we might get out of it more positively at the end. But look, it's all that stuff going through your mind that, that moves me on to my next topic of conversation. There's much talk and has been much talk about mental health during the course of all of this and how mental health could be the next pandemic. Some people have said that. And the effect of COVID-19 on mental health and the effect of lockdown and restrictions in particular, like those who are observing it, we know this is the hardest lockdown. This is the hardest of them all to deal with on so many levels. And there's a sense sometimes of, will this ever end? And will I ever have a normal life? And then there's the people who a year ago had a normal life, a good normal life, and that's gone. And and they're terribly, terribly worried and concerned and they're panicking. And they're getting on to places like Lachine House in West Cork. Mick Kearns is the manager there. Mick, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. You have a, a counselling service and helplines and you're busier than you've ever, ever been. That's right, I suppose. Um, last week, I suppose, was the busiest week we had in the seven years that the the service has been in, in existence. Um, the calls just kept coming. Um, and there was a common theme in all of the calls, um, and that being COVID and, and the anxiety and worry out there around COVID. Um, like, January can be a tough one anyway for people with mm. post-Christmas blues and, you know, starting off a new year and, you know, trying to lose weight and the, the usual things that we all go through in January. But COVID has blown all that out of the water and it, it's, it's consumed people's lives. And I suppose people are, the common team, as I said from the calls, of people worried and anxious about how, you know, will it ever end? How am I going to cope? And people are struggling. What kind of people are you hearing from? I suppose that's another aspect to it. It's like, as you mentioned there in your introduction, it's people who, before this 
would have considered themselves to be perfectly, be, you know, not normal lives, want a better word, normal. But, you know, they were getting on with things. They had everyday problems that existed. They got over them. They had very good coping skills. If something popped up, they were able to navigate around it and move on. But with COVID, there's just so many different aspects. Where obviously, the high number of deaths that have been reported in recent times has really brought it home. I suppose the last two lockdowns, it wasn't so severe because the, the, there was initial surge in deaths, but it seemed to be somewhere else. But it's now embedded in the community. And yeah. that's what's really worrying people. And it's getting closer to home all of the time. And, 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 and there's a sense of helplessness there, you know. Will I be next? You know, what more yeah. can I do? Because people have been very good of, of adhering to, by and large, of adhering to the to to the restrictions that are there and, 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 you know, keeping their distance and washing their hands and all that. And yet the numbers post-Christmas went through the roof. Yeah. And There's another thing too, um, I think, Mick, and this is just as, as an observer, that there was a time in the first lockdown, the second lockdown, all throughout last year, if you asked someone, well, do you know anybody who's actually had COVID? Do you know anybody who's been in hospital? Do you know anybody who's been in ICU? Do you know anybody who's died? Those, that, that's going on. Like, like I know now at this stage, I know loads of people who've had it. I know a couple of people personally who've been in hospital, one of them in ICU. Thankfully, I personally don't know anybody who's died yet, but I'm almost afraid it's going to come any day now. Well, you're quite right, because as I said, you know, last March, the initial uh, lockdown, and, and again, later in the year, you know, it, it seemed to be somewhere else. But the reverse of that is true now that nearly everybody knows someone who has had, you know, COVID. Many people in, in their own circle or, in, you know, in their own family. Um, and, you know, they, they know of someone who has died now, maybe not personally, but they know someone who knew someone who has died. And, and that's when it gets frightening because, you, you know, the virus, you know, doesn't, it's not one set of society. It's across the board. Again. Young and old, it affects everyone, you know. And you could be the unlucky one if you do contract it, that, you know, you might have a very adverse effect to it. And, and you could end up in hospital or worse again in ICU, you know. And, and, and I suppose all of that. And combine that then, I suppose, feature with all the misinformation out there surrounding it and all the, you know, the conspiracy theories out there. Yeah. around us and you know the internet while it's what, great, do, what do people yeah. say about that Mick without obviously breaching anybody's conf- confidence like I look at that stuff on my uh, social media every day and we watch some of it coming in on the comments uh, and there's just this any amount of absolute bullshit and let's use the word yeah. out there and like my block button, I, my, my, my blocking finger almost has arthritis at this stage from just shutting people out. Now, yeah. it doesn't trouble me too much, but for an ordinary individual trying to sift through what's true and what's not, that adds to their anxiety. Well, 100%. Like, if you turned around and told me, Mick, today is Monday, and I'd say, no, PJ, it's not, it's Thursday. No, no, it's Monday, Mick, it's definitely Monday. And I'd say, PJ, look, cop on, it's not, it's Thursday. But if you told someone else and you repeatedly say to them, today is Monday, after a while, they might believe it's Monday. So your man, the radio said it's Monday, so it must be Monday. Now I know that. But of course, then he was paid to say it's Monday. Well, well, this is it. This is where it comes from. Absolutely. And a lot of the clickbait, like everyone, nearly everyone out there now has a a smartphone and and, and we all turn to our phones for information more and more. And, And we see these things popping up. 
And like, I wouldn't say use the word naive, but some people think of it under it must be real. And the whole idea is you go in there and it, there's a whole advertising stream behind that and the more people that click on it, it creates revenue for the people. But it's anything but news. It, it, it's just sensationalism. And as you said, some people have the wherewithal to decide what's right and what's wrong and what's true and what's fake. But other people don't. And they kind of... It can have a very adverse effect, you know, and it can add their worry and their anxiety, you know, and mm. it, it, it's, it's very unhelpful. Now, everyone is entitled to their opinion of, you know, whether this thing is, is, is real or fake, but I don't think if anyone uh, had a family member or know someone who dies, that's oh. as real as it gets, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And they didn't, they didn't die from or get very sick from anything that was fake. It was a very real condition. Come, come back to me on, on one last thing there again, Mick, with regard to people who had a perfectly normal life, whatever normal is, a yeah. year ago, and now it's fallen apart at the seams. They must be very scared, a lot of them, that it'll never come back. Well, they are, you see, because it, it's like if, if you just look at it, like many people are on, on the, the COVID payment or the pop. Um, you know, their job is gone temporarily, hopefully, for a lot of people. Um, you know, their, their kids aren't going to school, whereas normally they would be in school. People are worrying about paying rent or mortgages. So it, it's across the board that's affected people's lives. But I suppose, you know, and and, and the numbers are, are unfortunately stubbornly high still, but they are coming down, you know, overall, yeah. according to NEFET. So... I suppose there is hope there, and that's the most important thing. That's what I just like to say this morning: is there is hope, and we will get through this. We will get out yeah. of it. And I don't know if it's going to be Patrick's Day, Good Friday, or you know, the Mayor Bank Holiday. No one knows. And I suppose the thing is, it's looking too far ahead and setting deadlines, and then them failing isn't the best thing either. So if if we could just say, you know, take one day at a time, mind ourselves in in you know by by exercising, by eating as well as we can. And by communication, because communication is really the key to it. And, and this is a message from our panel of councillors when the noise come in this morning. They said, just if people are worried about anything, just pick up a phone, you know, be it to a family member, a friend, anybody, or someone like Lachine's house helpline or the other helplines that are out there, and just communicate. Because yeah. the old adage, like, you know, a problem shared is a problem halved, and it's never been truer, you know. Yeah. And, and just... You know, rinse out your fears, talk through them, and and see what's real and what's not. And and by by you know having those conversations, it will help us, you know, come to the conclusion what what's the real story here. And once your once knowledge is power, and once you have that, it will help you deal with it better. Because no one has answers, unfortunately, when this will end. Okay. Will end All right. Mick, I'll leave it there. Okay, a lot, a lot of people are struggling, and and hopefully they can they can reach out to one another. I think, and then if they need to, they can reach out to some place like the Sheen's House. Their helpline: o two three and all the eights: o two three eight double eight double eight double eight and Lichine's House dot ie the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Lehan Motors, leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See lehanmotors.ie. Go, go, go. It's the weekend. Yes, it's the weekend. Weekend. Yeah. This is how we party. Club 
96. Is the soundtrack to your Saturday night. On Cork's 96 FM. Darren Johnston spins all the biggest hits from 6. Then Rob Allen's got the old school mix from 10. Your Saturday night sorted. Sorted. Cork's 96 FM. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850 715 On Cork's 96FM. Regular on the show, Graham Clifford, uh, he of Sanctuary Runners and other such projects, has come up with a really wonderful idea and he wants it to start obviously in Cork but he wants it to grow and wants it to be national and he's calling it the National Day of Thank You and he's given us plenty time to prepare for it. Graham, good morning. Morning PJ, how are you? Good. This is such a cool idea if you don't mind my saying so. The National Day of Thank You. Thank you to whom? Well, I suppose all of us PJ would admit that this phase of COVID-19 has been more tricky perhaps than the phases that preceded it in terms of staying upbeat and staying focused and motivated and so on. It's very difficult. Um, And as we approach the anniversary of the first case of COVID-19 being detected in Ireland, the first case was detected on the 29th of February, uh, last year, of course, being a leap year. So this year, Rob, as we build up to that one year mark, I suppose I, I was I was worried about, you know, people looking back in despair and looking forward still with some concern and trepidation. And so trying to replace that feeling of national gloom, perhaps with something more positive. Um, and, um, you know, people are helped through each day by others without the person giving the help, even realizing it. You know, it can be the very positive person at the shop, shop at the till counter or the postman or the neighbor who's constantly positive or the TV or the radio presenter who's on every morning and who lifts us and we can anchor our day around him or her being on. And so it's being able to say thank you to those people for mm. helping you get over that hump. I was looking people at who help post- you without even knowing it. Exactly. And I was looking at, I'm, I'm like Joe Biden here now, but I was looking at some quotes, PJ, of the importance of thank yous, you know, and like uh, Stephen King, the author said, you know, don't let the sun go down without saying thank you to someone. And without admitting to yourself that absolutely no one gets this far alone. So it's taking that moment to say thank you. And can you imagine how good it makes a person saying thank you and how good it makes uh, the feeling that it gives to somebody getting the thank you as well? It could lift everybody. So you want to you, you get us all planning for the 28th of February again for that anniversary. And you want to start a hashtag, thanks a million. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we threw around a few ideas. And, and I think if we, could, if we could get a million people doing it, that would be a fifth of the population. Maybe we'd get even more. Um, and then it's using that very Irish phrase, thanks a million. And, and just getting that trending and getting people aware of it. Now, it's not set in stone. They can thank people all the way up to February 28th and after if they want. But it's just using that date, I suppose, PJ as an anchor to get people okay. to think about it. So if people wanted to, you know, because of COVID-19, you could uh, send a text message or a WhatsApp or an email or TikTok or make a video or draw a picture or, or a poem or whatever. Schools will be getting involved as well. So it's very exciting. Okay. I don't have much time to talk to you about You're it grand, today, I but I will, I will do more with this because I think it's a really, really cool idea trying to get hashtag thanks a million 
trending. We've got over a month to do it until mm. the 28th of February to say thank you for people who've helped us in ways they didn't re- even realise they were helping us since mm. all of this started a year ago. Graham, thank you very much. We will talk again about this. This is the National Day of Thank You that Graham wants to organise at the end of February. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Courts 96 FM. Yeah. Quick reminder to you of our Premier League live coverage at the weekend. Carson 96 and bringing you the Premier League exclusively online and powered by TalkSport. This is every Saturday afternoon. Our man Trevor Welch has the pre-match analysis you need. He has some of the biggest names in the game on interview, live commentary, exclusive post-match analysis. The whole lot. It's the Premier League live online with Now TV stream all the action from Sky Sports on the Now TV Sky Sports Pass. And listen Saturdays on the Cork's 96FM app or go to 96FM.ie. Premier League Live with Trevor Welch every Saturday afternoon on the Cork's 96FM app. 1850 the number. The text to WhatsApp 083 396 The email opinion at 96 m .ie. If you missed any of our first hour this morning, remember that the podcast goes up in mid-afternoon and catch up on anything you missed. Do Generally what we do is we stick the link up on Twitter once it's ready and then it goes uh, to the Cork's 96FM app or goes to any of your favourite platform. Just subscribe and you'll get our podcast every afternoon. I haven't done these for a while and I propose to start doing them again and maybe add to them uh, over the next few weeks because we're in this for at least another, I would say, four to five weeks, at least another four to five weeks, uh, this level five lockdown when we're supposed to stay at home and we're supposed to get someone else to do stuff for us, particularly if we're vulnerable, particularly if we're elderly, particularly if we shouldn't go out, particularly and most importantly, if we're self-isolating or restricting our movements because we've been at close contact or if somebody in the house has had COVID or if we've had COVID or suspected COVID ourselves, uh, you know, if we've had a test and we're positive, you might feel fine, but you're not supposed to go out. So there are many, many ways in which you can get help. And we did this quite frequently during lockdown one last year. We did it almost every day. I don't plan on doing it every day, but we'll do it frequently enough during the week. So the community call numbers, both the city council and the county council have community call going on uh, where you ring up a number and you can talk to someone and a volunteer will be found or a staff member will be found to seek and they assist you with whatever ails you. The city council has its community call number is 1-800-222-226. That's 1-800-222-226. And the county council number is 1-800-805-819. That's 1-800-805-819. Just ring that number. The Lord Mayor was on with me yesterday outlining the kind of services and the kind of help, even so much as a bag of shopping for an elderly neighbour, they'll do it. Uh, 1-800-805-819 is the county council number. Now, another number that's been there since the start, and indeed it's still there, is the HSE's info line on COVID-19. If you want straight facts, straight information, straight advice, one 850 24 1850 1850 24 
1850. And then another great website that emerged in the early days. And remember we brought that up with, with Mick from Lachine's house in the last hour. Again, it'll be on the podcast if you missed it. People struggling to, to suss out in their heads what is true, what is good science, and what is nonsense. And the best website out there is www.ihealthfacts.ie www.ihealthfacts.ie We'll add to that list and repeat various elements of the list as we go forward over the next couple of weeks. Also tomorrow, uh, we're going to have some fun, I think, with you. We'll discuss it ourselves after the programme, but the that I love Graham Clifford's idea. I just think it's brilliant. Uh, the hashtag, thanks a million. And we're trying to roll a ball on it tomorrow on the show Uh, and obviously there's a month now to the day but let's see if we can roll a little ball tomorrow we'll 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 see what you think all right where am i going oh yes someone who used to be a very frequent guest on the show a very regular contributor to the show uh, is councillor fiona ryan of uh, solidarity now we didn't always agree she and me. There are days when I'm sure she wanted to throttle me. But one thing is for sure, she always made makes a solid contribution to the show. Uh, she's been missing for a while. And why was she missing? Because she has been having major medical procedures. Fiona has the, the, back, the BRCA gene, the Angelina Jolie gene, as it became known uh, when Angelina Jolie came out a few years ago and said that she had this genetic condition that predisposed her to breast cancer. It's the BRCA gene. So that is what Fiona Ryan has been doing for the last couple of months. She's been focusing on her health, focusing on her well-being and focusing on her future. And she has been telling our Fiona Corcoran all about it. So, Councillor Fiona Ryan, um, you're back in action after your surgery. You had a double mastectomy back in October. Just tell me a little bit about why you had the double mastectomy. Um, well, um, a, a couple of years back, um, it was discovered in my family that um, some members had what was called a BRCA1 gene mutation. And that basically means that... Um, particularly women in my family but not exclusively um, we have an increased risk of breast cancer and um, and ovarian cancer um, up to 80 to 90 percent risk of developing it Um, and generally speaking women will develop it younger uh, than average so um, once I I knew that it was um, in my family it, for me, um, I was very sure that I knew what I wanted to do. I didn't want to have to manage the worry of breast cancer for the rest of my life. I, I wanted to eliminate that risk as much as possible. So I decided to go with the preventative uh, bilateral mastectomy. When you heard that you had the gene, um, you know, what did you think? Was it a shock or were you expecting it? I think the thing with this gene is anyone who finds out they have it, it's never really a shock mm-hmm. because you will have seen it in your family. Um, it's not, it's something that's passed down. It's hereditary. You will have seen um, uh, breast cancer in your family and you will have seen it probably occur in family members younger, whether it's your, 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 your mother, grandmother, you know, great grandmother. It, it's not, it's, ne- it's rarely a surprise. It's, but it's something that you, you know, if your parent has it, you have a 50-50 chance of having it. You can either inherit it or not. So there's always a fingers crossed that, you know, you didn't inherit it. But I mean, I was well prepared to, 
you know, have that, you know, positive result of the, the gene mutation. But it's such a brave decision to make to have both of your breasts removed at the age of 31. I think it's um, it's brave no matter what decision you go through. Um, I mean, I was very comfortable for the decision I made. But, I mean, it's also brave to, to, to go with the screening option, which is, is available. And it's a very, very good screening program in the CUH in Cork. Um, in the Orchid Clinic, um, I mean, I actually, in ways I find it braver to go that route. I, I, the the anxiety for me was too much, you know. But but many women decide that they they they, they go through the screening and and catch sort things early if mm. if something is indeed there to be caught. Um, and so I think what's important when it comes to these things is 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 arming women um, to make those choices and decisions whether it's they decide to screen or whether they decide to have the mastectomy and you have had a reconstruction as well i chose to go with reconstruction on the day uh, of the mastectomy so there's a range of options that um, women in my position are are offered you can have immediate reconstruction which is what i chose personally i i I didn't want to wake up without breasts but uh, for others, it might be um, less risky to to kind of let there be time between the mastectomy and the reconstruction to heal up, and a lot of women choose that route. Um, and there are women who choose to not have reconstruction at all. You know, the 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 options that are there for women are are profoundly different even to what was there ten years ago. You've also decided to have your ovaries removed, is that right? Um, so yeah, that's that's another issue with when it comes to this particular gene mutation. Um, it, you know, the, the breast cancer side of things is very well publicised. Uh, um, you know, it would been come into the public consciousness, I think, when Angelina Jolie uh, got her preventative. That's where most women, when you say, oh, I have BRCA1 gene mutation, they look at you funny until you say, you know the thing that Angelina Jolie had? And then they go, oh, I see. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the, the other side of it is I have a, a risk of up to 60% uh, of developing ovarian cancer, which is actually much m- more, um, the, the prognosis is much worse for that. That, that form of cancer. So yeah, in the next uh, couple of years, I'm going to also need what's called an ophthalmectomy. Probably, I always pronounced that wrong. <laughs> um, um, and that will be preventative also. Because I suppose ovarian cancer is much more difficult to detect than breast cancer. It's extremely difficult to detect because more, more often than not, it's symptomless. Um, by the time you do have symptoms, those symptoms are usually cramping, pelvic pain, um, <laughs> symptoms that many women have every month. Um, and by the time the symptoms are there, it's, I mean, Ireland, I think, has a five-year prognosis of about 36%, um, which is very low. I think it's, it's, it's lower in Ireland, actually, than it is in um, mainland Europe. I, I don't know why, but it just is. Um, so, obviously, that increases the timeline for a lot of things that women my age would have in terms of family planning, in terms of, um, you know, uh, you'd have to go on to uh, hormone therapy. Mm-hmm. In the immediate aftermath, you go immediately into menopause after. So there's, um, you know, it's it's also a very tough surgery, less 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 physically demanding than the mastectomy, but in terms of the 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 the, the, the side symptoms, it's it's in ways more demanding um, in terms of long term management. So was that decision a much more difficult decision to make, given the fact that you are only thirty one, you don't have any children yet, um you know, going through the menopause in your mid-30s is going to be big for you mentally and physically? Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely in ways the 
if you if with the two surgeries even yeah. though one is probably a keyhole surgery versus the mastectomy I would say that that one is definitely one that I would fear more but I mean again I I think that whether it's the uncertainty of 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 potentially developing ovarian cancer versus not I would still go with the surgical mm. route personally but yeah I mean it, it, for me mostly it's it's made me more conscious of of things um and needing to get my 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 life together and if I'm considering children that kind of thing mm. um it's it's been put on fast forward a bit um mm. but yeah uh, I'm 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 happy with my decision to go with surgical route, but I mean it, it is going to be a big change, definitely. Yeah, 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 definitely. And I suppose like the fact that you are thirty-one, it is that you know when women hit their thirties, it is something that they are considering, you know, having children. And you know, I was even talking to my friend yesterday about it, and you know, like this is the age that you kind of start considering it now. Well, I mean. I mean, as much as the the surgical side of things does, you know, speed up the timeline. I think the the main considerations are main considerations that most young, I say mm. young, I'm not young anymore, yeah. but most people <laughs> um, my age are, are like. I mean, to be honest, the bigger biggest barriers are are the cost of living. Yeah. The biggest barriers are the lack of support so around maternity services, whether you're a counselor or whether you're a uh, you know, uh, a call center worker or a retail worker. Um, the the struggles are all the same. Of like, how the hell are you going to actually pay for all of this and and do it comfortably? I mean, a lot of us were sold on the idea of, well, you know, you settle down, you you buy a house, or you 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 you, you rent even a house is out of the, mm. the 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 reach of most people my age these days. Um, and that you'd have, you know, savings. Those those days are gone for a large percentage of people my age. Now we, we have to make the choice of, well, do we go ahead and, and have families um, not being as secure as our parents' generation mm-hmm. would be? Or do we keep letting letting it wait you know if that's not a decision that we prefer in which case it might be more difficult so so I don't consider myself um that much different than the average person really actually given mm. my age um it's the same issues it's just I, I I need to have a surgery in a couple of years that's that's really the only difference you did have the surgery um in October and it's now what January so how have you been in, in that time oh and um, well the 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 recovery is has been fantastic the support I've gotten from um the breast the orchid center and CUH breast clinic and um my plastic surgery team in the CUH has been second to none um I'm really happy with the results. The recovery was um was tough um tougher than I thought in way in different ways um um, I was expecting pain, but the pain was actually very well managed. It was more um, excruciating uncomfortableness. It was the swelling. You have to wear compression uh, compression bras and, you know, um, it just no matter how you, you turned or lied down, it just couldn't get comfortable. And that, that persisted for a couple of months. But now I'm at the point now where I, I can start to see the results. I'm very happy with the results. And um, my mobility is, you know, coming on leaps and bounds every week. And, you know, I'm at that point now where I feel like I'm over 
you know the the worst of it and i'm 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 very pleased and obviously you've had this surgery during a pandemic which probably didn't help matters either no and um, actually I, I consider myself very very lucky um it, you know my surgery was had already been delayed a couple of times because of covid and that's no one's fault you know yeah. it, it just is what it is but i managed to i mean i had my my surgery early october and uh, I think only a couple of days later, new lockdown measures were put in. So I, I couldn't visit anyone. I couldn't see my parents. I couldn't see my family. You know, I couldn't see my partner. It was, but but the care I got in the CUH was amazing. Um, and, and like, not just care, but like consideration, mm. if you know what I mean. Um, and uh, there's women in my exact situation, for example, um, in Dublin who are told that, um, they could they could get their mastectomies, but they couldn't get the reconstruction because of the pressure on on um, on beds and the pressure on on the, the lack of services that are available in the middle of this crisis. So I, I consider myself extremely lucky in that context that I was able to get the surgery, even if it wasn't in ideal mm. circumstances. You were just lucky, I suppose, with the timing and everything else. Like just. Absolutely, absolutely. And that I had, you know, very good consultants who were, were, were banging the drum for me. And, you know, I think we're also conscious that it was delayed um, so much. And, um, you know, uh, again, through no fault of theirs. But, um, yeah, definitely very grateful. There may be young women who are listening to this and who are going through the same thing, you know, that they're have a test ahead of them to find out if they have this gene or they may have just found out that they have it. What kind of advice would you give to them? Well, first and foremost, I would say to any woman with a history of breast cancer in their family to don't panic. Um, you know, it's it's still a rare mutation um, and one in five women throughout the course of their lives will develop breast cancer. Um, but, you know, technology has improved so much. Screening has improved so much. Um, the care really is there. Um, um, though, of course, services can always be improved. Um, secondly, I would say that um, don't feel in any way. I mean, I've, I personally felt supported to make the decision that was right for me. And the decision that's right for me might be the decision that's right for another person or, you know, a third person. But um, to, you know, that, that, that there are no you know right or wrong answers when it comes to you choosing the treatment mm. that's right for you um, and to t you know take time research the pros the cons of all sides um, whether you decide to go with permanent screening whether you decide to go with preventative surgery um, just know that you know the choice is yours and um, that there is supports there no matter what you decide that's Councillor Fiona Ryan uh, talking to our Fiona Corcoran about her decision to have a double mastectomy, huge decision at the, her age of just 31 to prevent herself having to deal with the extreme likelihood of breast cancer later in life because of the gene in her system. And that's why she's not been around uh, contributing to news and contributing to the show over the last few weeks and months. And we wish her well. As I said before we ran the tape there, there were days when uh, Fiona and I didn't see eye to eye. There were probably days when she wanted to throttle me, but that's okay too. Always a great contribution to the show and wish her well in her recovery and look forward to chatting with her 
uh, sometime very, very soon. 1850 the Cork's 96FM music panel gives you the power to pick our playlist. Click 96FM.ie now. 96FM.ie now. Take the 10-minute survey and you could win a 100-euro shopping voucher. The power to pick what we play. Pick what we play. Join the Cork's 96FM music panel. Find the link on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Find the link on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Or C96FM.ie. This is Court's Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850 715 On Court's 96FM. Now, last year in the first lockdown, we got used to watching the birds. It was a great way to stay in and just look out the window at the birds in the garden. Now, the weather was better because it was later in the year, but sure, there's birds around all the time. And Birdwatch Ireland is running another one of its garden bird surveys. Now, they started in December and it'll run until the end of February. And hopefully by the end of February, well, the weather will be better. The evenings will be that little bit longer. The mornings will certainly be that little bit brighter and there'll be more opportunity. To, to look at birds and seeing now as if we're going to be definitely stuck in lockdown until at least the middle if not the end of February we'll have more time to look at them so I thought we might catch up with Birdwatch Ireland uh, about this survey and how we can take part and the fun we can have doing it Brian Burke good morning to you good morning how are things good 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 to talk to you Brian this this was a big hit last year because with the first lockdown in springtime, uh, the weather was nice and the evenings were getting longer and there was loads of birds. And because the streets got quieter, we saw birds that we never saw before or if we did, that we hadn't looked at before. And and you did a survey and you've got another one going now. Yeah, so this survey has actually been running for the last 30 years. We run it every winter and it kind of gets more and more popular every year but as you're saying this winter in particular with with a lot of people being stuck at home it really is you know the ideal winter if if people haven't gotten involved in the survey before this is the year to do it you know Mm. little robins are ones that stand out stand out like you in in the worst day in the dullest day of the year that little red patch just stands out yeah, absolutely. This time of year, they're one of the few birds um, that are singing already. You know, they can be quite territorial over the winter even. Most birds are just territorial over the summer. So yeah, they're ones that really, really stand out. They're never that afraid of people. And they're, they usually come in in first place in our, our garden bird survey every year. So they usually occur in about 99% of gardens. So that's how kind of um, prominent, widespread and, and how fond of gardens they are. Such a gorgeous little bird. People have this idea, Brian, that I have a robin that visits me and he's my robin. And I'm thinking, sure, they all look the same. How the hell do you know? Do they choose particular favourite gardens? So if you have a robin comes into your garden, is it because he likes you? It's because he knows that you're a good source of food, I suppose, and that you don't pose a threat. 
Um, so you will get robins. So if you have robins nesting in your garden over the summer, it's likely in the winter you've definitely got that male there. He's still guarding the territory so that no other male comes in and steals it in the spring. And you might have the female around then because the robins have started singing again. There's a lot of robins moving around now. Some kind of, you know, some of last year's juveniles trying to see where there's a vacant territory uh, and stuff like that. So kind of up until now, you've probably seen maybe one, maybe two robins in your garden, but you might actually see three or four now. But what you'll see is it'll be one or two robins chasing away the other one. And because He's they're not so territorial. It's cold either. No, they're they like out in you know, the they're, snow and the frost. They're quite a quite a small bird, but they're definitely one of our heavier garden birds. They probably weigh twenty, twenty five grams. If you look at something like the wren, you know, you're talking seven or eight grams, you know, and then there's a lot of our garden birds that would you know, be kind of in and around that size. So yeah, they're they're kind of well able to to deal with it. They just fluff up their feathers and that helps trap extra heat and, and get on with their business, you know. Yeah. Now we also became well, I personally anyway became fascinated last year, Brian, with the magpies, um, because is it just me or are they huge? They're one of those birds that are, yeah, people probably, until you actually consciously look at them, you don't realise quite how big they are. It's the same with them, some of the gull species that you get in the cities and stuff like that. It's like when you take a look at them, they're actually quite big birds, yeah. Yeah, there was a guy, and and they, they're they're very... They announced their presence. Like, we were looking out the window, myself and the missus last week, looking out the window. They've a, we have a green area across the road. And there was this fella strutting up the middle of the green. And he was the size of a small kitten. And he's strutting like a fella who owned the place. Brilliant to watch, like. Yeah, oh, they're like, you know, there, there can be some problems with them in places, but they're fantastic birds. You know, some of the colours, if the, the sun catches them in the tail, the yeah. metallic kind of greens and purples and... As you said, they're they're full of character and then they're not afraid to announce their presence, you know. So yeah, no, they're they're great great to watch. But as you said as well at the start, the beauty about birds is there's birds wherever you go. You know, if you're sitting in a car park, a supermarket car park, you'll see a couple of magpies going about their business, you'll see some pie to tails running around the place. Wherever you go, there's birds, you know. People became fascinated as well with finches. Uh, green finches, gold finches. Yeah, like so, so they're the birds that really kind of bring some colour to your garden bird feeders. The goldfinches in particular, really, really stunning birds. Lovely red face, and then they've got this black and yellow wing and kind of a, a brownie kind of gold colour to the body. So, you know, really, really welcome splash of colour, especially at this time of year. Um, so we've seen the trend with the Garden Bird Survey. Again, we've been doing it for 30 years. Um, since the 1990s, the number of goldfinches has gone up and up and up. So they used to occur mm. in about 20%, maybe 30% of gardens in Ireland. And now they occur in 80 to 90%. So they've really, really, numbers have gone through the roof and, and kind of everyone's, you know, delighted to see them. Unfortunately, yeah, although people, the opposite people are is the putting case, out that the greenfinches are gone the opposite way. The greenfinches are gone the opposite way, is right, yeah. So the last 10, 12 years, there's a little parasite that has kind of adapted to infect greenfinches. So they've kind of, you know, they, they used to occur in a huge amount of gardens and they're kind of declining more and more every year, unfortunately. So that's the beauty of a survey like this. When you're doing it long term, you see mm. these changes. So you see the increases in some species and the declines in others. Now, we've had a particularly cold uh, few weeks and we're headed into another few very cold, damp, unpleasant days. I think part of your survey is you want to look at the effect of cold snaps or prolonged cold, smells, cold spells on our on our smaller boards. Yeah, so there's kind of no two years are the same with this survey. You kind of think, oh, Jesus, you're the same birds in the garden every year. Definitely not the case. And then we really see it... Um, 
with, with those cold snaps. So we had the beast from the east there a couple of years ago, and the, the jump in the different species, you know, in, in terms of how many gardens they went into, was huge. A lot of the thrush species, so blackbirds, sun thrushes, missile thrushes, red wing field fare, absolutely through the roof because, you know, all the, the fields that they usually feed in are completely frozen over. So the one little bit of, you know, maybe unfrozen or kind of, um, you might have cleared a bit in the garden or they might know that there's feeders or you're putting out apples or porridge oats or something. So they all end up coming into gardens. So it's really, really interesting to see that jump in the numbers. But then also in the kind of the winter after a cold winter, we tend to see a big um, drop off in, in the tiny little species, the gold crests, the wrens, the long tailed hits. And that's because they're just so tiny that they're the ones that are hardest hit um, when we do have a cold spell when it's very frosty and very snowy. So how can people take part in the survey? You download it, I take it, and it's a poster and you take boxes and all that. So you can, if you go onto our website or just type in Irish Garden Bird Survey or you can find us on uh, our social media, Facebook or Twitter, Birdwatch Ireland, um, you know, social media. It's all on the website. So you get to it very quickly. It's very easy to take part. And yeah, that's it. You can download a form to print and you can write your numbers into that or equally you can um, enter them online and that will just get sent off to us automatically. All right. Listen, Brian, good to talk to you as always. And thank you for that. That's Brian Burke from Birdwatch Ireland. I've been doing this for years, but, but of course... We only discovered it last year, I guess, that they were doing it. I thought it was a new idea, but it's not. It's been on for a long, long time to see what birds are inhabiting our gardens and coming back and staying away and what influences them and what draws them and what keeps them away. So Birdwatch Ireland, you can download their, download their poster from their Birdwatch Ireland website or indeed just search uh, Garden Birds Survey and uh, that will come up for you. 1850-715-996. Get a contact just before I go to a tune. A couple of things I wanted to clear. First of all, uh, to do with the special needs schools and the special needs classes and the various categories of worker that was expected to come in if the schools and classes had opened today, which, of course, they didn't. Uh, they might do next week if people can put a plan together and get their heads together and come up with something that'll actually work. But we got this message. Dear PJ, I'm a bus driver. I drive special educational children to school and I have two fantastic escorts on the bus and I see every day how hands-on they have to be on the bus. When we arrive at school, there's a lot of interaction between the escorts, the SNAs, the teachers, when the children are getting on and off the bus at the school and going home in the afternoon. I do understand the anxiety about the schools opening up too early in the height of the pandemic. I have great sympathy for the parents of children with special needs. I've been doing this job now for more than a decade, and I understand that children need routine, but everybody seems to be giving out about the teachers and the SNAs not wanting to go back to school. There's not been one word mentioned by the Minister for Transport or by Norma Foley or by the news media about the bus drivers and the escorts. How safe is it for all the other people involved in opening up these special schools safely? We did get some messages in about escorts. And again, I suppose going back years, a few years, in, in our own situation here, when our boy went on his bus to his school and loved it, absolutely loved it, and came home on his bus. The escorts and the people who travelled with them on the bus, it is very hands-on, it is very close up. And you can see how those people, bus escorts and, and drivers too, would, would be nervous. 1850-715-996. Something else that came in and I wanted to mention to you. Remember the last time we had such 
uh, a controversy. Yeah, controversy is, is a fair word. We we spoke to some hairdressers about how they had been approached. To Joe Byrne told me, for example, that he'd been offered wads of cash to do hair for someone in his own home, and he was turning it down. And there was a huge black market, backdoor, back garden trade in hairdos last year and we got lots of information about it that it was, it was going on wholesale and there was very little being done about it. Got a message in from Ken. Uh, Ken says that they're doing it again. Can you ask PJ to mention that there are hairdressers calling to homes cutting hair? I've seen or I've heard a lot about it and I've seen a few lads with new haircuts. Now I'm working on a COVID ward in the South Infirmary and I'm working nights but, I, but I'm, I'm fuming when I hear this I'm fuming about people breaking regulations like this going to someone's house to do their hair or getting someone into your house to do your hair and not realising not only are you making money from it but you could spread the virus and just make things worse 1850 uh, Well done to Fiona for having the strength to do that to take the operation and best wishes in the future Kate says what a marvellous lady and yeah very brave telling of her story uh, and, uh, and thank you for doing that uh, Fiona 1850 um, <laughs> I just got a text message sent to me that is purportedly going around from a school um, a school that is doing a lot of work online. Now, I'm not going to name the school, okay? I, we might check it out, but I'm, I'm not going to name the school here. But shall we just say that the person who sent this to our house would have a connection with the school? So, here's a, a text message sent out to parents or a WhatsApp message sent out to parents from a particular school. And that's all that I will say right now. It says, most students are engaging well with live classes, but we wish to make the following requests. Students are to be dressed rather than in their pyjamas. Students are to be out of bed while they take part in class. Student cameras are to be switched on. If cameras are switched off, teachers are talking to a blank screen and can't gauge levels of student engagement and comprehension. Thank you. Now I get out about the camera and I get out of it. I love that bit. Students are to be dressed rather than in their pajamas. <laughs> yes, sir. Eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. The opinion line on Corks ninety six FM. With Lehan Motors, leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your two one one Toyota. See LehanMotors.ie. Access all areas on Corks ninety six FM. Your guide to nightlife on the side. Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Corks Entertainment. Irish electronic artist Alex Goff is set to play two shows at the Kino on Washington Street on Saturday. February 27th. Tickets can be purchased based on a table of 
2 to 5, with the early show taking place at 7.30 and a later show at 10. Access all areas. Rescheduled from April 2020, comedian Milton Jones returns to Cork with his new show, Milton Impossible. The new rescheduled show takes place at the Opera House on Tuesday 27th of April, with tickets on sale from CorkOperaHouse.ie. Access all areas. Feel free to let us know at Access All Areas if you have a show coming up in 2021 or live streaming events by emailing AAA at 96FM.ie. Access All Areas. Your guide to nightlife on the side. On Cork's 96FM. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083 396 On Cork's 96FM. Now, after three weeks in Studio 1.5, I'm due to be back in the main seat on Monday in Studio 1. And I'm looking forward to getting back because the idea of working full time from home for me for the last three weeks, I've enjoyed it. I absolutely enjoyed it. But but I missed I missed being at base. And for, for thousands of people, working from home is reality, not just has been for the last few months, but will be uh, for quite a while. And for some people, it's a very different form of work. It's different for me here doing what I do. I won't go into the reasons why, but it's different for everybody. And some people are struggling with elements of it. One of them being guilt, which is a very unusual word. Guilt. Why would you be guilty about working at home? Why would you be guilty about for working at home? It seems to particularly affect women and especially moms. Let's explore it a little bit with uh, life coach uh, Neve Brady. Neve, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. How are you doing? Good. Like, my missus is working from home several days a week, and I know thousands of people are doing it around the place. But where does the guilt come from? Yeah, so there's two types of work from home guilt, actually, PJ. So people usually talk about the first one, right? And that's you might feel guilty because you're at home while you're working. So, you know, you're worried that the boss will think that you're slacking off. Maybe you're watching Netflix and you're not getting the job done. And that causes people to you know, work longer hours and to find it difficult to switch off. But what we don't talk about enough is the other type of guilt, which is you're guilty because you're working while you're at home. Um, and you can hear the household running, you know, um, in the other room or downstairs, you hear the kids screaming or, you know, and TV going or just the, just the chatter. And you feel that you should be in there. You know, you should be in there helping out and not on your laptop. Um, and it really affects, as you said, parents who are working from home at the moment and the kids are there. Um, and they're just really feeling, they feel guilty when they're with the kids that they should be at work. And they're feeling guilty when they're at work that they should be with the kids. And it seems like there's no way. Um, and it's just something I think we all need to be aware of and talk a little bit more about at the moment. The, the work-life balance is something very important in all of our lives. And if you finish at 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, close the briefcase, put on the jacket and come home, that allows you to set the balance. But when I'm sitting in one room, the kitchen is next door, like when that is a permanent situation, that's almost impossible to balance it. Yeah, it is. And you're absolutely right in terms of that leaving the workplace. So, God, I remember being in the office and you'd start to see people, you know, powering off the laptop, asking each other, oh, what's for dinner? You know, what are you doing this evening? And you start to even mentally shut down 
you know, to, to leave the day behind and then commute home and by the time you walk in the front door you're ready. We don't have that at the moment. But one thing that I suggest people to do, PJ, if if, if they're struggling with that is maybe just set an alarm for 15 minutes before you're due to finish work and use that last 15 minutes just to take a breath, you know, reflect on the day. Don't rush into the kitchen. Yeah. You know, give yourself that 15 minutes. It'll make all of the difference because it'll allow you just a little bit of space to, to transition or perhaps even jump out of the house and take a quick walk around the block and come back in the front door again, you know. Um, small mm. things like that could, could help, you know. Yeah, rather than just literally shutting down the laptop and going in and putting on a saucepan. Oh, yeah, and I do it myself because, you know, when my toddler comes in uh, the door, I literally tur- turn off the monitor, run down the stairs, hi, how are you, In turn on the stove and away I go. You know, it's very easy to do it, which is why setting that alarm, the 15-minute alarm, is a reminder because you need that cue, you need something to tell you, oh, take a minute now before home life starts. Um, and it does it does make a real difference, and it's an easy thing to do as well, you know. Another thing that becomes difficult is to actually stop at quitting time. Like if the office is closing, it's either you and the cleaner at six o'clock, or you get out of it and you get home. But if you're working on something at ten to five or quarter to five, the temptation is stay with it, and that might be seven o'clock, and then you've created another problem in that home life is suffering. Oh, absolutely. And people are working on average a uh, half day extra a week at the moment. And that's the average now. There's definitely people why, who why are... Why is that, though? It's because I feel um, people are losing that sense of boundary, to, to your point. But also, it's very difficult to say when enough is enough. Um, but again, like one thing that I'd always recommend people to do, and it's an easy thing to do, really, is to focus on the outcomes that you need to achieve during the day and not mm. the hours. So even if you make a simple list, like an app or on a piece of paper, whatever suits you, and write down the top three things or five things that you must get done today. You know, these are the main jobs for today. When it comes to... It's the task-centred approach, isn't it? Results-centred even more so than tasks. Because you can say, look, I need to get onto PJ today. To do that, I need to do three things. If I I know if I do those three things, the results will come. The results will come. Um, and I'm setting myself up for success. And, you know, when that 15-minute alarm goes off, take a look at your list, check them off, and then give yourself permission to leave the laptop. And I always suggest physically plugging out the laptop when you leave, because otherwise you could be walking past it later on and you go, oh, I might just check, you know, I might just check yeah. the email there. But if it's physically plugged out, you have to physically plug it back in, and it just mm. makes you a little bit more... A little you, bit more you, aware of what you you're doing. You would shut down your computer before you leave work. So shut yep. down your laptop before you finish working at home. Plug it out. Another yep. thing is planning. Planning is difficult. It's harder at home than it is in the office. So you need help to do that. And literally the old writing stuff down. Yeah, absolutely. Like I have, I suppose, a bit of a rule when it comes to planning when we're working from home. Allow twice as much time as you expect for things like kids. <laughs> Half the time for housework and focus on the most important things you have to do in work work, right? So that's maybe your top three things. Um, and for some people, planning the day out um, really helps them, you know, to get organised. I'd always allow them or recommend people leave a bit of a space for the unexpected. 
And perhaps if you're that way inclined, maybe to track your time for a couple of days so you can get a sense of what your reality is now because that changes week to week and month to month. Like we have the kids at home now, so your plan for before Christmas isn't going to work now. So tracking the time and becoming a little bit aware will allow you to plan better for the week after. And again, pen and paper, or there's loads of apps as well for all this kind of stuff. What what apps would you recommend? I know myself, I I think... um, uh, Google Google Keep is brilliant for keeping lists of stuff, but there's other ones. Yeah, Google Keep is very good actually. And to stay on Google, they did a brilliant thing with their calendar a while back that you can schedule in obviously your appointment. You can add your tasks, but you can also set goals. So you can put a goal into your Google Calendar app and say maybe I want to exercise, and it'll say how often, and you put in three times a week, and it'll suggest times based on your calendar, or you can put in your own time, which is quite cool. Um, another app that I like to use is Todoist. Um, again, it's a checklist app, a to-do app, and I put in the three things or the five things that are most important today, and then I get to tap them off as the day goes along. Gotcha. And for time tracking, there's a really good free one called Toggle, T-O-G-G-L. I've heard and about re- this. Yeah, and the reason I like it is because the free version actually allows you to pull in your calendar automatically so you're not like, you know, duplicating things and having to remember to put things into different apps and stuff. It takes care of all of it in the background on the free version, which is quite nice. But um, if all else fails, honestly, make a list and stick it on the fridge and write yeah. it off, you know, take it off yeah, the day goes lot, down. There's a lot to be said for, for sticky bags. Niamh, I'll leave it there for no reason other than time. I think that we're going to be stuck with working from home for quite some time, so we just need to adapt, I think. Uh, and uh, your advice is is very, very much welcomed. Thanks very much. That's Niamh Brady, uh, 1850 The Opinion Live with PJ Coogan on Quartz 96 FM. Interesting thoughts from Tom on working from home. I'll get to it in a little while. His argument is if you live in Sundays well and you can work from home, who's to say that your job won't be taken by somebody in Singapore or Mumbai working from home? Yeah, I'll, I'll read it in a little while. It is interesting. Thanks, Tom. 1850-715-996, the number. The text to WhatsApp, 083-396-9696. The email, opinion at 96fm.ie. If you missed anything in the first couple of hours of the programme, remember our podcast goes up in mid-afternoon. You'll get it first on Twitter. We tweet the link once we've uploaded the podcast and then it goes up on all the usual platforms, including uh, the Cork's 96FM app. So you can listen back to anything that you might have missed. Now... I read a horrendous story on the evoke.ie website in the last couple of days of a young couple who were struggling to have a baby, uh, as many, many people do. And they were looking to try IVF treatment, as again, many, many people do. And an IVF is expensive. An IVF can be a bit of a gamble because you don't know whether it's going to work or not. Now, I'm sure my next contributor may argue the point with me on that but that would be the the perception of a lot of people when they're thinking about IVF it's it's a lot of money and it's a gamble and you know you don't want to you don't want to lose a whole pile of money but at the same time you desperately want to try it because you desperately want a child and this story that I read was about a couple who went to Chechia uh, because they saw 
advertisements and they saw a website for a place there that they could do it less expensively, or so they thought. And €32,000 later, they abandoned it. But it wasn't just the, the loss of the money. It was obviously problems caused by language barriers and misdiagnoses. There was misinformation. There was medical errors. They felt that they were exploited at the end of it. And they actually considered giving up the whole IVF thing and maybe focusing down the road of adoption. But then they decided to try once more and they decided to approach the Waterstone Clinic in Cork and they went on to be successful uh, and and have a successful process there, which is great. Now, we have been doing IVF on the show before. We have talked about IVF on the show before. But in the wake of people still going abroad uh, to do it, where they perceive it to be cheaper and they perceive it to be easier, that's not always the case. And that's a cautionary tale. And I was recalling to the lads in our own production meeting this morning of somebody that I knew years ago who found themselves in a difficult situation also in Eastern Europe and had to get help, actually diplomatic help, to get out of it. So let's go to Mira McAuliffe. She's fertility specialist and head of clinical services at the Waterstone Clinic here in Cork. Mary, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. How are you? Good. A lot of people would be tempted to go overseas when they see fancy websites and, and they see a prospect of you know, saving money and all that, because the perception is it's hugely expensive and and very difficult to get into a program here, is it? Um, I think not so much in relation to difficulty in getting into a program. Um, A lot of our patients would self-refer to the service. Some people would come to the service via their GP or perhaps a consultant doctor uh, or another specialist uh, doctor that might, you know, kind of have a chat with them about fertility and then, you know, recommend that they see a fertility specialist. Um, The waiting times realistically aren't very lengthy from the time you approach a clinic to being seen at the clinic and proceed on to your treatment and that time is normally a number of weeks that could be taken up at taking you know blood at different times of your cycle and so on and really I suppose the most important thing I suppose Paige before we get into the depths of IVF is to say to people if you feel a fertility concern do seek you know not treatment but seek first of all seek assessments to see exactly what is going on for you is there, you know, things that you need to be aware of that can be corrected easily? Um, will a simple course of treatment help you in that quest for your family? And for others, they might need more detailed treatment like, you know, the means of IVF or ICSI or perhaps donation treatment. But without knowing what it is that you require, like from time to time when I talk to people on the phone, um, that first phone call, they can be quite concerned um, that they think that if they need fertility treatment, the only treatment that's there if they're failing to become pregnant at a length of time of, of their desire, um, they're concerned that they'll have to have IVF. Um, and IVF is wonderful. Um, it's a great treatment for those that need it. But everybody doesn't need IVF. That's the first thing to say. So sometimes when we talk on um, the media or talking generally even socially, a lot of talk you know, kind of goes around and uh, you know, the cost of IVF or perhaps egg mm. donation and other treatments. But many, many people pass through our fertility treatment uh, centres in Waterstone Clinic and other clinics every year and have babies successfully from far easier, less expensive treatments if they're suitable for those treatments. Yeah, yeah. But focusing on IVF as, as a, 
as a standalone in, in, in itself. How yes. costly is it? Yeah, so IVF is approximately €4,500. Um, people will have the cost of their medications as well, and DPS covers the cost of medications for fertility treatment in Ireland, which is, is, is a good benefit, as in many European countries. Is it, it, does is it have covered by insurance like VHI? Uh, some insurances give some um, benefits towards fertility treatments, but not all fertility treatments. And it tends to be, you know, a once-off um, sum in, in most instances in relation to insurance. So insurance-wise, it's not fantastically covered, but there is some assistance there for sure. But many people that would come to our doors may not have private insurance. Um, so, you know, that benefit in relation to uh, insurance companies may not be of benefit to them, say, for instance. Um, there's also a huge well, perception, I mentioned it in the introduction, there, there's a perception, and I struggle, I, I stress that that's the word, mm. that it is a gamble, is it? Uh-huh. Um, it's not so much, like, obviously it's something that you have no guarantee. So there isn't many things in life that you spend money on, and at the end of it, that you don't have what you spent your money on in your arms. And obviously the aim of somebody walking through our doors is they want to walk home with a baby and with their family. Um, so yes, in some ways you could say it's a little bit of a gamble because you have no guarantee that you'll walk home with a baby at the end of it. But that's the importance of assessment. If you have assessment by a good fertility expert, they'll give you your individual chances of success per treatment cycle and per cycles that come from that original um, you know, IVF. Many couples will have a situation where they have a cycle of perhaps IVF or ICSI and go on and have some frozen embryos from that treatment cycle. And for some, they have built their whole family from treatment. And we see that each year, you know, people would send in things for the Tree of Hope. Um, and, you know, some people might have had three, four babies from that one original cycle of IVF coming back again and again for a placement of subsequent frozen embryos. So for some, it'll work really, really well, and then it's fantastic. We're happy. Um, the patient is happy. Um, mm. For others, it may not work, but the longer you procrastinate and, and don't seek assessments and have kind of, like, I think the most important thing is to get your assessment and go home with information and yeah. sit and take your time over that part. So and for many, you assess- might start saving and so on without waiting yeah. to see what they need. Yeah, sorry to come across you. When when you assess uh, a couple and you go through the various tests, and it's all very technical, so I wouldn't necessarily list them off here. But when you go through the assessment process, can you then sit down with any degree of certainty and and say to John and Mary, look, there's a five out of ten chance or a seven out of ten chance that this will work? You can. Um, you can, it's not like absolute certainty because you can't have that. You know, it's just not there. We can't say this couple will definitely have a baby from this one treatment cycle. But we can give them a reasonable chance of success. So for their age, for their hormone levels, for um, how their ovaries look on scan, we can give them a very 
reasonable chance of where their chance of success would be if we were to take them through our programme. And then they have time, they'll get all of that information out in their letter and report to sit in the privacy of their own homes and decide what is their best step. Because for some, we'll be talking about their chance of taking home a baby from a course of treatment, perhaps of, you know, in excess of 50%. For others, we'll be talking about chances of, you know, less than 10%. And it's very, a huge percentage of this is age dependent, unfortunately, on the female partner. Um, and, you know, fertility isn't infinite. Um, so we that, that can must be very really difficult to do that. Yeah. There must be a big emotional element to this, as in you get the letter and the report home and you go, oh, God, there's only a 10, 15, 20 percent chance. They, they obviously then have to deal with the, the mixed emotions of that. Where do you go from here? Do, do they get help with that? Absolutely. And we never put something on a letter home, PJ, just in case, you know, yourself or your listeners are concerned that we haven't discussed with the couple in the actual clinic. So what goes home to them is what we discussed that day. And it's just a reference. So you'd never get the shock of a letter that says, oh, God. No, 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 this is all information that, you know, the information is quite rapid. It's something we sit with them and discuss at that first visit. And the letter is only a reference point because, uh, you know, you can have people sitting in a room with you. Um, you can have, you know, a level of stress and emotion coming into that first visit. Um, and some, you know, information one person might hear more than another. And it's always good to bring somebody with you to that consultation. If you're in a relationship, obviously, try and bring a partner if you can. Um, uh, but to have somebody with you that you trust as well just to, to hear that information with you but the letter fortifies that information so that you know they can read back over it again and refer to different points or pick up the phone and ring us at any stage. Equally there's counselling service available within in the clinic um, and that's free of charge to people that have been to the service so whether that's difficulty around making a decision about how we should proceed from here um, or whether it might be about processing the information that you have been given Mm. Um, and some people will walk into that uh, first consultation and be really really concerned and think they're going to get really bad news and you know be very very heartened by that meeting and others obviously walk into that meeting not expecting to get the news they're getting Um, so obviously it's something for us that we're very mindful of uh, because it is you know it's a huge part of a lot of people's lives many people plan towards you know their family from an early stage of of their their life or perhaps their relationship mm. so it's something that we need to be very mindful of as we're talking to um patients in the centers yeah. has the pandemic had an effect on the ability to provide IVF treatment. It's affected pretty much everything else, but has it? It affected? did for a period of time. So for a period of time back in March, um, there was you know perhaps up to two months there, where all of the clinics in Ireland stopped stopped providing you know fertility treatments to assist people in becoming pregnant. Now we're still there in the background. We're still you know talking uh, through a couple of plans with them, altering plans you know, coaching them through where we were at and keeping them informed. But there was a period of uncertainty when the European society asked us all to pause um, and wait for further guidance. And and everybody followed that guidance. We adopted a policy actually very early on in Waterstone Clinic of strict masking in the clinic by all staff members and by all patients coming in. Um, And 
once we opened back up again and we just brought the treatments back on, you know, one by one, um, and now we're back up to fully operational uh, since midsummer. Um, it's working out quite well. The staff are very mindful of it. We have many procedures in place to protect the patients and the team. Um, and patients are being wonderful and everybody's respecting mm. the fact that we all need to work together to keep fertility services open and available. It is an essential service and that's really important. So even at level five, we're all still open, operational and there to support treatments and persisting with treatment cycles in a safe environment. Level five is stressful on so many different levels for so many different people. Is it a good idea to try to conceive during level five by IVF or any other means? Hmm. It varies from person to person. So, or from couple to couple if you're in a relationship. But what I would say is that, you know, right now, I suppose it's it's not really the level as much as the, the vaccine. So some people are waiting on, you know, you know, people are asking us, you know, should I wait and have a vaccine before I go on to conceive my baby? Um, and the answer to that is it's very individual. And, you know, if you have you know, the luxury of time, which some couples do, you know, there there's some couples that attend us, you know, at the early stage of fertility journey um, and have some time, um, you know, a number of months that they can, you know, delay treatment by. And if yeah. you're in that position and if you're comfortable to delay, then we'd encourage you to delay because... Do, then does you can it help have that people are spending more time at home, for example? We're finding actually many people are saying they're reconnecting as couples. So, you know, we're finding the effect of where couples are finding that they have more time to talk, more time to make plans, more time to think about family, more, you know, some people are in a situation where they've had some savings from working from home. Others obviously aren't finding that situation, perhaps could be in a situation where they've lost their job. But for some couples, it's almost like a gift of time. You know, they've had that time together at home. For others, obviously, it's stressful. We've all changed. Lifestyle has all changed. We're spending more time around each other. And the home, many home places, not all, many home places have become far more relaxed places as a result. And there's some, some research, I'm told, that during... Uh, the pandemic globally, they have found a, um, a reduction in the number of stillbirths, uh, and maybe that's down to how relaxed it can be in some some elements of yeah, your life. Maybe there is certainly a profound effect of, like we would see people even coming to appointments now. You know, if they're coming from home, they don't have that same pressure as they've had before in kind of, we'll say, hiding perhaps in the workplace, what they're doing, trying to nip out, people watching them and saying, I wonder where she's going again today or whatever it might be. It's a very personal time and you don't want to tell anybody, yeah. Yeah. You know, and it is, you know, people are addressing things like lifestyle issues, like exercise and diet. And, you know, while we're here, you know, a lot of people have the, the you know, the, the pandemic weight on. For many others, they don't, that they've kind of rejuvenated their lifestyle and taken that opportunity when they may not have, you know, even the time they have clawed back in commute time um, has given them time. And for many, you know, we've surveyed um approximately 400 of our patients that have attended for the first time over the last number of months. Um, And what we've heard from them is that for many, they've actually felt that they've given more time to talk together about what's important and what they want to achieve than they would have done ordinarily um, and taking this time then to plan family. And I suppose if you're working from home, um, you can mind yourself as well. So for those that don't have time and can't delay fertility until they have a vaccine, 
sought out. Um, they can actually, you know, work safely from their home, readdress any risk factors that puts them at higher risk of COVID. So if, if both of you are working in your home, um, and if you're only if you're following guidelines in relation to any activities outside of the home and being as safe as you possibly can be, your chance of getting COVID obviously is limited as well, yeah. and it's not as risky as if you're working in a very busy workplace. Um, obviously, it increases your risk. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting topic. You could spend many hours talking about it, but thank you for summing as much of it up as you can in the limited time we had. Uh, thanks very much, Mary. That's Mary McAuliffe. She's the Head of Clinical Services at the Waterstone Clinic. And we thought, having read that very, uh, very uh, upsetting story of the couple who found themselves effectively ripped off for 32 grand and nothing to show for it at the end of it, only stress and misinformation and a, fear or a, a feeling of being exploited, uh, maybe go local. Maybe go local. 1850-715-996. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Lehan Motors, leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See lehanmotors.ie. The drama is sensational. That's 80. Oh, he's done it. It's an equaliser. It's stoppage time. And it's all right here. Grealish for seven. Join me, Trevor Welch, on 96fm.ie for the Premier League Live online, powered by TalkSport. Go, go. Join us Saturdays as we bring you pre-match analysis with some of the biggest names in the game. Live commentary, exclusive interviews, and don't miss the post-match breakdowns. Go, go. The Premier League Live Online With Now TV Only pay for the games that matter to you Your sport on your terms With Now TV Listen every Saturday on the Cork's 96FM app Or see 96FM.ie This is Cork's Gold Imro Award winning talk show The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan Text or WhatsApp now 0833 On Cork's 96FM I mentioned Tom had sent in an interesting comment about working from home, and it is interesting. Maybe it's a small little bit paranoid, but it's interesting all the same. Tom says, I understand that working from home is necessary during the pandemic, but if this catches on the way a lot of experts on the radio are promoting, not your particular guest this morning, it'll be nothing but hurt for the worker. You'll be heating the house more, If a new peripheral becomes a part of work, it's up to you to accommodate it, like new equipment and stuff, and you'll have to rearrange things to do that. Also, if you've someone saying Sunday's well working from home, then why not someone from Mumbai doing the same job? You know how it'll go. Initially, it'll be because they can't get a suitable applicant locally, and it'll go from there. Yeah, well, see his point. On the underground hairdressing, and the message that we had... Um, from from um, who was it again? Let go back down and get it now. From Ken, yeah, message from Ken earlier on about he is hearing and he's working uh, night shifts in the South Infirmary. Uh, I presume as a nurse, but he was saying he's hearing a lot about underground hairdressing and people. He's seeing people going around with new hairdos um, that they just can't possibly have done themselves. Uh, Magella said, or is it Maya? Maya, sorry, Maya. Hi, PJ. Not everyone is getting hair colours or hair cuts from hairdressers in their house. 
Like me, for example, I put hair colour in my own hair and everyone asked, did someone do it for me? And I keep saying, no, I did it myself. So for other people, if they see others with new hair colour or a new haircut, it doesn't mean that there's someone doing it uh, in their house for them. Men can get a haircut from their own family member or women can do their own hair colour. Don't paint everybody with the same brush. And I wasn't, Maya, or not was even trying to. Um, but I do, I do take it. Some people uh, can do it for themselves. I'm lucky enough, although at the moment now my, my hair, my own hair looks a bit like a bursted cushion. Do you know that kind of thing with the, yeah, looks to this bit. I'm going to have to try and get something done, get the daughter to do with me what she does with the dogs, I think, probably, um, at some point over the next few days or weeks. And, and the missus would, would tell you that she has a bat's nest growing on her head at this stage because she can't get to her hairdresser. But some people are doing it for themselves. But there are people, and don't kid yourself, Maya, there are people going around taking cash and giving cash to do underground stuff. It was ill-advised the last time, it's ill-advised this time. 1850-715-996. I must say, a lot of uh, messages this morning of support for Councillor Fiona Ryan, uh, who outlined to Fiona Corcoran what she's been through in the last few months after opting for a double mastectomy to... Supposed to eliminate the, the likelihood of her getting breast cancer in, in later life because she's got that BRCA1 gene, the Angelina Jolie gene. And she told her story to Fiona. She's back working now. She's been missing for quite some time and she's feeling better every week and good to hear that. But it's amazing the, the support coming in from her, you'd, from some sources that you'd expect. Uh, a lot of people on Twitter expressing their good wishes to her. I was very surprised and pleasantly surprised to see the lads on the proc who wouldn't always be her number one fan. But this morning they're saying, you know, in fairness, all politics aside, we wish her well in her recovery. That's nice to see. 1850-715-996. We've mentioned since early this morning that Neffet is having its regular meeting today. And of course, will issue advice to the government after that meeting. Uh, we know as well that from the parliamentary parties of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, uh, last night they were pretty much told, look, lads, don't even think about exiting lockdown at the end of January. In fact, we're probably looking closer to the end of February. But one thing that Neffet is going to discuss today, and we think advise on, is ventilation. Now, if Neffet, I'm assuming, I'm hoping that they've advised on it before, but if not, you wonder why not. But we've come to know over the last month that ventilation is so important, which is why I guess in a way it was so nice in the summer to be able to get the virus levels down to very, very low. And then we were able to go and enjoy ourselves to an extent in the outdoors. And people had, for example, outdoor gigs where someone had set up their music on a driveway and people would gather around on the green and have music like that. Ventilation, being in the outside, it's, it's so much better. But now, uh, Neffet are looking at how do we ventilate our buildings and our homes better because we're told to do that. And there is the prospect of sitting there freezing, eating your Sunday dinner because it's safe. Um, that's being discussed by Neffet today. Orla Hegarty is from the UCD School of Architecture and joins me. Orla, good morning. Good morning, PJ. Ventilation, it's of key importance, but I suppose in the country we live in and the way our weather swings, lovely open windows and doors in the summer, it's great pleasure. In the winter, not so much. 
Well, I suppose the thing to start with is we're not talking about people going back to living outdoors or living in outdoor conditions where in January. Um, the, the comparison I've used is, you know, when we're outside and uh, in the winter or in the summer, it's a bit like being in, in the ocean. So if there's any virus in the air, it just gets um, diluted very quickly yeah. and it blows yeah. away. But when we're inside, it's a bit like being in a fish tank. And if the virus is building up, it's just getting more and more murky and concentrated. Um, and obviously in the winter, we spend more time inside. So what yeah. we need to do is we need to keep the air moving. Um, and in some places, maybe filter it better uh, than uh, than having loads of fresh air. So there's a lot of strategies we can do in the same way that you might with your fish tank. You might have a filtration system. You might have a trickle flow coming in at one side and out the other. Um, or you might manage the amount that are in it. So there's a lot of strategies we can do. We can manage the number of people that are in a room or in a building. We can have air movement. So that might just mean having your window cracked open and the door to the room as well. That can make an enormous difference um, and in some cases people can use fairly basic filtration plans so it's like a fan that has a filter attached and it is constantly pulling in the air from the room uh, trapping any virus or any other particles like pollen in a filter and then putting uh, cleaner air back into the room. So ventilation so, doesn't necessarily mean opening all the doors and windows and sitting there freezing eating your dinner? It doesn't, no. And I think the schools, I mean, in fairness to the schools, and um, the teachers have made an enormous effort, um, you know, the schools to keep going until Christmas, um, worked on kind of on the basis of, look, we'll, we'll flood the place with fresh air and we'll keep us, ourselves safe. So it wasn't really done scientifically. It was done on the basis that, you know, uh, we'll have lots of fresh air um, rather than we'll have enough fresh air. And, and, and uh, great credit to them that they took the initiative on that from the end of August. Um, so now what we need to do is be more strategic and more specific because all of this is measurable um, and all of this is the work that architects and engineers and chemists and physicists understand. So we can measure all of this and we can have a standard for what is low risk and what is safer conditions. Um, and we don't need to wait for the vaccine program to catch up and we don't need to wait for the summer to arrive. So there are simple things and pe- people can measure the carbon dioxide in a room. Um, mm. So measuring the carbon dioxide is really measuring how much air has been breathed out and how concentrated that is. So if there's a lot of carbon dioxide, it means a lot of people have been breathing out and the air hasn't been freshened up. Um, and you can use those. They're a little small. They're smaller than a mobile phone. They're a small device. You can use them in a classroom or in a supermarket and uh, it would allow us to start reopening a lot of places. I mean, I've been doing spot checks in supermarkets and small shops, um, and I think with a bit of advice, a lot of them could probably be open at pretty low risk, um, you know, fairly soon. And and similarly with classrooms, if a teacher can monitor the carbon dioxide build-up, it means you don't have to have the windows open all the time. You know, yeah. you can you can trigger when it gets dangerous. And, and this is what's happening in businesses in Japan. Um, they have, like, traffic light systems on the wall where green will, will say that the air quality is good and then it will move into amber or, or red. And, and if that happens in a school, then you can take everybody outside, you can open all the windows and doors, and 15 minutes later, you can all come back in. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Gabriel Skelly was on the show here last week uh, or the public health doctor and mm. he was saying he grew up in, in Belfast and the schools were built in a different way to where they are now they were very high and we all remember I remember them anyway um, the school the, the, the walls were, and the ceilings were really high and there was a level of window at the top of the ceiling that you could open to ventilate the room but 
it didn't get cold. There was loads of ventilation there. Do we need to... Um, do we, do we need to go back to some of the old tricks when we're designing our buildings now? Well, all of the principles are there, really. And I suppose in the last 50 years, since maybe the end of TB, a lot of these things have been forgotten. Um, I went to a primary school that was designed in the 60s where there was windows on both sides. And in fact, the school didn't have corridors. It had uh, canopies and outside you moved around out of the rain under a canopy, but you didn't move around in a corridor. And every classroom had windows on both sides. Um, and if you think back even further to bigger buildings like churches, I mean, the high ceiling there was so that yeah. you could have crowds of people and that there was um, enough volume of air and air movement. Yeah. And and the Georgian sash windows, you know, they let air in at the bottom and out at the top. So, um, you know, we, we have a lot of... Uh, techniques that we can use yeah. for this. We, we became um, so dependent on air conditioning in the modern world that we've forgotten that long time before there was air conditioning people circulated air in different ways. Well I think we we got air conditioning certainly in some parts of the world more than Ireland but we also maybe got antibiotics and, and things you know medical treatment started to be considered more than prevention and I think we need to go back to the prevention um, that people had in the past where you know pe- people would have been used to airing out the house in the morning for 10 minutes by opening the windows or sleeping with a bedroom window slightly cracked open um, you know very small things can make a big difference even running the kitchen extract fan you know will pull a little bit of air through from a small window having yeah. the door to the room open as well as the window is very important in designing a house build, either a new house now or, a, or an extension or a refurbishment of a house, are people, do you think, starting to take this into consideration? Well, a lot of people don't realise that this is all in the building regulations already. It's all regulated. Um, I think um, with newer buildings, obviously, people in the last few years have been going very much towards energy performance and sealing up buildings and they're often not getting the ventilation right so a lot of new buildings wouldn't have enough airflow in them um, but I think also people do works to buildings you know like they might uh, you know extend a house into a nursing home or they might subdivide it or they might in an older hospital they might have replaced the windows and blocked up the chimneys um, without doing a check on these things and it's only now when we have a public health crisis again I think that we realise we were, you know, building dangerous conditions in a lot of places that need to be remedied. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose commercial premises going forward will will have to take what's happened in the last year and a half into, or the last year anyway, into consideration because all the experts tell us, look, once we get rid of this pandemic, we're only a number of years away from the next one. Well, we absolutely need to future-proof, but also for energy. I mean, you know, the schools can't keep heating classrooms with all the windows open that you know the energy demand even on people's home bills would be too high so there are plenty of things we can do to in the short term obviously i think we're all going to be a little bit colder um but in the longer term um there are lots of things we can do to uh, fix this and it'll tie in with people having you know safer warmer homes but also better air quality and, and better general health um i think people have also noticed this year that you know the the other viruses like flu and um, you know other respiratory illness have probably decreased for a lot of people where mm. they are outside more or they're breathing fresher air so mm. you know we've learned a lot over the last year I think about our general health and all this. Have people started to look as well at maybe doing things like building in ultraviolet lamps into their into their homes or into rooms or into commercial premises when we were talking well, well, 
I don't think ultraviolet light. Yeah, I don't think ultraviolet is is the first action for most people. I think for most people, it's just to learn the principles of this, so that you know, if you're having even in a family, if you're having a cup of tea with somebody in the kitchen, that even if you crack open a window very slightly and you open the door to the hall, you're keeping your conditions. Um, much safer than if two people were sitting in a room and one has no symptoms, it could be dangerous within 20 minutes. So, yeah. you know, very small strategies like that. Uh, particularly cars, I think most people have, have don't see cars as being a risk at all. Um, in a family, in a car, you can have really dangerous virus build up from one person within five or ten minutes. Yes. Um, and I would, I would imagine a lot of the spread is happening that way. So having, having two windows slightly open on opposite sides of the car and not running your heating system as recirculation, but running it as full fresh air, um, that can keep the conditions in a car or in a van going to work. Uh, that, can, that can keep it quite safe. So there, there are a lot of small things that people can be doing now. Okay. Orla, listen, thank you very much for that. That's Orla Hegarty from the UCD School of Architecture. I, I mentioned this actually um, months ago and a lot of people said yeah my missus does it too and it's driving me mad for years here we go out in the morning and the, the Queen Bee opens all of the windows in the house which is well upstairs anyway which is lovely in June and May and July and August and even September when you come home and it's nice and breezy and airy. And what breeze has been there is going through the house and it's lovely. But in January, when the temperature inside is the same as the temperature outside, because she's done that, you go, are you mad? And actually, no, because you're coming into a house that's that nice, clean, fresh air in it. And it's well ventilated. And maybe it's a good plan. Uh, dealing with the virus. 1850-715-996. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Lehan Motors, leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See lehanmotors.ie. Simon Murdoch and the best music mix. Weekdays from midday on Cork's 96FM. Thursday at work or working from home or if you just need the best music mix to help you through your day, I got it for you. Chat to you from 12. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850-715-996. On Cork's 96FM. Here's a story coming in uh, on the various news sources, which I've no doubt will be a topic of conversation later in the day, and maybe even here tomorrow. A uh, man has been jailed 52-year-old man has been jailed for 10 and a half years for coercive control of his partner. This was the first such case. A fellow called Daniel Kane from Blanchardstown in Dublin. Uh, he was jailed in total for 12 and a half years and two years were suspended uh, for coercive control, intimidation and multiple assaults on his former partner over a two-year period between 2018 and last year. And that's the first, I think, sentencing of someone for coercive control, which coercive control is only a crime in this country since either last year or the year before. I think, yeah, I think it was 20, 2019 it became it became officially a crime on the statute books. Maybe that one will be will be of interest. 1850 There's research out there now to show that young people 
um, say between 15, 16 and 22, 23, are struggling a lot to find accurate and reliable and, you know, solid sexual health information. There's tons of it online, absolutely tons of different sexual information online. Like the, everywhere you look, there's something to do with sex. But the question is, is it accurate? Who is sharing it? Can you trust it? And I guess people who are learning about the ways of the sexual world can find themselves confused and, worse still, can find themselves ill-advised. Uh, and, and you don't want that. So in response to that, uh, the Sexual Health Centre here in Cork has set up its own new service on Instagram uh, with an agony ant for solid and reliable information. And the agony ant is Murda, Murda O'Farrell. Hi, Murda. Good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. How are you? Good. Now, you're a research officer and health promotion officer, but agony ant is your, is your new title. There is so much out there. And a lot of it is nonsense, and some of it is dangerous. And imagine trying to sift through all that when you have a bit of a problem at 15 or 16 that you don't really want to share, you're nervous about, you're confused. Trying to find solid, reliable advice can be hard. Absolutely. And as you spoke about there, the research has really shown us the difficulties that they face. And when we think about lockdown and everybody being at home, the traditional sources of information like your friend groups or, you know, the the education you receive in school have really diminished. So everybody's Googling, we're online, they're searching for this information. And what we found is that there's a huge fear of being discovered. So obviously, if you're at home and you're younger and you're Googling things, are you sharing that tablet? Is somebody else going to look at your search history? And also, what are you actually bringing up? So if you type in a sexual health term, chances are you might inadvertently bring up something like pornography or if you happen upon some of the the actual sexual health resources what young people have been feeding back is they're very text heavy so you get these huge paragraphs of information that you've to sift through and then the language can be quite difficult for some people so we have this medical base of it and it's very factual and a lot of it relates more to maybe STIs or you know specific types of contraception but who is informing young people about just general myths that go around in the community? Like, how many times can I take the emergency contraception? We get questions a lot in the centre, like, you know, can I actually get pregnant the first time I have sex? Things that Do if we're not... Open, no, no, stop. We're, they, were yeah. asking, they were asking that question when I was oh, 16. Yeah. They still ask and, that and question. Absolutely. It's something... I think, you know, we don't... We talk about it every day inside, so we're so familiar with it that it's surprising for other people when they hear it but young people are missing the very basic information a lot of the time so that myth has permeated that you get almost like a free pass the first time i still hear it in workshops when i go out and it's, it's amazing and unless somebody is answering this and telling them that these things aren't true they continue on because again there was another one that was equally as ridiculous Mira, and there's you can't you can't get pregnant if you're standing up oh yeah yeah this, you know, like there's all kinds of gravity takes over and that that's, you know, completely safe way to do it. Um, and I think sometimes even popular culture nowadays presents these messages falsely. So a young person was saying recently the WAP Cardi B song promotes the pulling out method, saying that this is safe. So, you know, some of the messages that people are getting, even in the mainstream media, are incorrect. And if you ask a friend, they're going to probably tell you what their friend said. And if no professional is standing in and answering those questions that they have, 
they're probably getting the wrong information. So where can people go? What's the news source to go to for the, the solid information? So our new Instagram page is called SHC Hub, so Sexual Health Centre Hub. We have not put Sexual Health Centre in the title because we know that's often a barrier for young people as well. They don't want to type that in. So SHC Hub on Instagram and the Agony Aunt will be answering questions anonymously every week. Um, so anything that young people want to put in, we can answer. They know that they're getting accurate information. They know that they'll be supported. They can be signposted to services. And just that, you know, it's really a safe and secure way to great. ask anything that you want. Okay, listen, great. Leave it there with you, Mira. Thank you very much. That, that's great. That's Mira O'Farrell, Research Officer and Health Promotion Officer at the Sexual Health Centre. That is amazing. Like when I was in school and, and we were learning what those bits of our body were for, they used to say, oh, you can't get pregnant the first time. Uh, and then they used to say, oh, you can't get pregnant. She can't get pregnant if you're standing up. They were nonsense then, they're nonsense now, but people still believe it. That's amazing. Coming up tomorrow, um, how good is your sleep? A lot of people have been struggling with sleep during lockdown for all sorts of reasons and struggling with sleep throughout the whole pandemic. We'll be talking to a psychotherapist called Jason Brennan about the issue of struggling with sleep and what we might be able to do to improve our night's sleep. So if you want to ask him any questions, text to WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Also tomorrow, we're going to come back to... Graham Clifford's little idea of the National Day of Thank You. Uh, the thanks a million, hashtag thanks a million. We're going to start that ball rolling for Graham on the show tomorrow because tomorrow is actually quite a significant anniversary on the Opinion Line. I'll tell you more about it, though, in the morning. Uh, the programme edited by Terry Brennan, produced and researched by Fergal Barry. Thanks to Wayne back on the desk. We'll see you tomorrow, just after nine.